Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. Had a great week last week, Easter Sunday, right? But y'all know Jesus is still alive today. So it's another great day to worship Him through song, to get into the Word. And so Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. And this morning we come to the second prayer uh, that Paul prays to the church in Ephesus. We looked at the first prayer in chapter 1. We started the second prayer, which begins with chapter three, in chapter 3. Uh, but then, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, Paul gets a little distracted. Paul's writing this letter, as we've already reviewed in, uh, the, in Rome, in a prison cell there. He's uh, locked up for preaching the gospel. And he's probably dictating this letter to a scribe. We think his eyesight was bad. And so, uh, it's kind of humorous to think about what the scribe was thinking as Paul began uh, chapter 3. Can you imagine, if you look at verse 1, he's like, all right, write this down. All right, I, for this reason. All right, got you, Paul, for this reason. I, Paul, I, Paul. And then Paul just totally abandons that flow of thought and takes off down what we call a glorious, uh, holy, ins- holy Spirit-inspired rabbit trail celebrating the great mystery of the gospel. And in verse 14, Paul picks back up where he left off in verse 1. All right, he's like, okay, where was I at? For this reason, all right, I'm going to pray for you. All right, now the placement of this prayer, I want to point this out right out of the gate this morning, is really, really important. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul has laid out, and we've studied this, walked through every verse. He's laid out some of the most richest doctrine in all the Bible. I'm telling you, it's right up there with the book of Romans. Paul has explored uh, who we are as believers in Christ, all the spiritual blessings that are ours that we have in Christ, how the church is one unified body in Christ. He's explained how through the power of the gospel, Jesus is bringing together Jews and Gentiles, uh, Gentile believers in Christ with all their differences. And he's now made them one family, one new race, one new man. And that continues to be God's plan today. He's redeeming a people uh, to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He's bringing together, continues to bring together by the power of the gospel, people who are very, very different in a lot of different ways, but who can experience a supernatural, deep unity and truly treat each other like family in spite of our differences because we have one thing in common, the most important thing, and that's Jesus. This room is filled with very different people from different places, different backgrounds, different opinions, different preferences. Uh, we're different people. So I'm going to ask you to interact a little bit this morning. I know I don't do this a whole lot, all right? So I need you to help me out. I need everybody to raise their hand. Very good. You put your hand back down. I'm, just, I'm getting you warmed up, all right? Warm up your shoulder because I'm going to need you to participate in this next little part right here. Let's see how different we are, all right? How many of you, I'm going to ask you some questions. Raise your hand. How many of you were born in Jacksonville? Raise your hand. All right. And I want you to look around and pay attention to the responses to these questions. You can put your hands down. All right. How many of you were not born in Jacksonville? Raise your hand. All right. That's pretty even right there. That's pretty interesting. All right. Let's get a little more specific. How many of you were born on the East Coast? Raise your hand. All right. Very good. You're in Jacksonville. Raise your hand again. All right. If you were born on the West Coast, raise your hand. West Coasters? Okay, got some of you. And I don't want to leave this one out. How many of you were born in the Midwest? Raise your hand. All right, got some Midwesters in here. Uh, and how about this? How many of you were born in, a, in another country altogether? Very good. How awesome is that? Look at that. I love that. All right, so let's change the subject up a little bit. So we're just seeing how different we are, right? How many of you would say your favorite football team, we're in college football country. How many of you would say your favorite college football team is in the Southeastern Conference? Raise your hand. All right, raise your hand. That's right, amen. Raise your hand. Now, how many of you, and we'll pray for you, root for a team 
in the Atlantic Coast Conference, ACC. Raise your hand. All right? All right, so somebody's excited back there. Get that excited about the message as we move forward, all right? Praise the Lord. I need some help up here. Who, who in here would say their favorite team's in the Big Ten Conference? Raise your hand. All right? Very good. All right. Got some Big Ten people. How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about right now? Raise your hand. All right. God help all of you. All right. The Lord help all of you. May you do a work in your life before fall comes. All right. How many of you, let's change the subject a little bit. How many of you, if you go on a vacation, how many of you would want to go to the beach? The beach sounds like a great vacation. Very good. How many of you, you're, you'd like to go to the mountains? That, that's more your idea of the mountains. All right. A lot of you raising your hand. All right. Now let's change the subject again. How many of you would say your favorite breakfast meat is sausage. Raise your hand. All right, there you go. Now, how many of you who are actually saved would say that bacon is your favorite breakfast meat? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right, how many of you are not breakfast people at all? You're not like, okay, we're going to pray for you. I don't understand that. I don't understand. I love breakfast. Now, we could, I got a lot of other questions right here. We could keep the exercise going all day long, but did you notice something that as we went through those questions, I hope you noticed something. Not one time when a question was asked, did everybody have their hands raised? I could ask a million questions about all kinds of different things, about music, about food, about movies, about likes and dislikes. And what you'll find is right here, right here among us, right here in this place, in our church family, we'd never be able to get everybody on the same page with any of those questions. Why? Because we're very different. But there is, as different as we are, there is one question that I could ask that we'll all agree on and get most of us and get on the same page about. How many of you, raise your hands, would say that you love Jesus and desire to faithfully follow him? Raise your hand. Look at this room. Right? You can put your hands down. All across the room. So there's a lot of us in this room who are very different, but there's something powerful that unites us together, and that's Jesus Christ and his mission. And, and, and I went through that activity there in that illustration because Paul has spent a lot of time trying to help us to understand that, trying to help us to see that we're different, yes, in a lot of ways, and we're diverse in a lot of ways, and that's a good thing. But what we share in common is the most important thing, and that's Jesus. And we've been united together as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's this unique dynamic, unexpected plan that is God's plan to change the world. And he's been unpacking this. He's been unpacking, again, who we are in Christ, all that is ours in Christ Jesus, who we are as a church. He's been unpacking all of this information for the first three chapters. And then what we're going to see in chapters four through six, he's going to flesh out for us how to live all this out practically in our lives. But before he does that, notice the placement of this prayer, before he lays out all this practical teaching and how to flesh out everything that we've learned in the first three chapters, he gets on his knees and lifts up this prayer for this church. And here's what the placement of this prayer implies and the contents of this prayer clearly communicate. That everything we just talked about, that he's about to show us how to live out, we don't have a shot at practically living any of it out in Christ, for Christ, for the glory of God, apart from hearts that are daily being transformed by Christ within us. We need God to do a work in our hearts. In fact, our hearts are like a hinge on which the rest of our life swings. And since that's true, we need to be praying persistently for our hearts and the hearts of people around us. We need to be praying in the same way that Paul prays for the hearts of these Ephesian believers. Hey, if our hearts aren't in the right place, if the power of God is not at work in our hearts, we don't have a shot at living out the rest of what Paul's about to unpack in these next three chapters. So we need this prayer. We need to learn from it. Let's stand and let's read it. It says in verse 14, 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart, hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God that to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray that through this prayer that you would teach us about prayer. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a result of being in this passage to be more mindful of the importance and significance of where our heart is at. Lord, help us as a result of being in this text today to tend to the hinge of our life, which is our heart, and that, Lord, you would work in our hearts. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it to conform us more to the image of your son, and we ask these things in his name, Jesus. Amen. So this is pretty awesome right here in the Word of God, how it allows us to eavesdrop on a prayer that the Apostle Paul prays. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way, but as we're eavesdropping, we can learn a lot from this prayer. We can learn a lot about prayer. And here's what we learn. We're going to learn two main things this morning. There'll be some sub-points. But the first thing that we learn from Paul in Paul's prayer is we learn how to pray with the right posture. All right, we learn how to pray with the right posture. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom Every family in heaven and on earth is named according to the riches of his glory. He may grant you. So the first thing you notice is Paul's posture. He approaches God on his knees, which in the Jewish culture, if you study it, that would have been something very unusual for people to do. It was typical in the Jewish culture for people to stand when they pray. You can still see that tradition lingering if you go to the Wailing Wall today in Jerusalem. So to get on your knees in those days, it was a very humiliating, humble posture. It was really a posture reserved for that of a servant or for someone in the presence of royalty. And so what Paul is doing as he kneels is he's demonstrating a humble dependence on God. All right, now, him on his knees, this is not descriptive. This is prescriptive, all right? This doesn't mean when you pray, you've got to get on your knees. Sometimes it's good to pray on your knees. It's sometimes good to put your, your body in a posture that can influence the attitude of your heart, but you can pray from any body position. I've said that before. The Bible you know, clearly teaches us that God hears us when we pray, whether we're standing or laying down. Hey, you can pray upright. You can pray leaning over. You can pray on your back. You can pray on your stomach. You can pray in any body position. You can pray in any place. You can pray at home. You can pray at church. You can pray when you're mowing your grass. You can pray when you're walking your dog, right? You can pray in any body position. You can pray in any place. The most important thing is that we're practicing persistent biblical prayer that's rooted in a humble approach to God. That's what Paul's showing us. Humbled like Paul by the privilege of prayer itself. Humbled by the great price that Jesus paid at Calvary so that we can pray. Humbled that we have a heavenly father. He uses a lot of language right there where he's mindful that God is his heavenly father. Humbled by that fact that we have a father who possesses all the riches and resources that we need and then invites us every day to draw near and to get the help from him that we desperately need. Paul is very aware in this position, in this posture, it communicates to us is he's very aware how desperately he needs God, how much his fellow believers need God and this is what drives him to his knees persistently and regularly in a humble posture praying depending on God pleading with the father God I need you praising the father you see humility there at the end of this prayer in his doxology 
He said, to you be the glory. Your will be done. We see a humble posture in Paul as he prays. So there's a general lesson that we can learn there about prayer. That the right kind of posture when we pray is that of humble dependence on God. So it's a general lesson that we can take away from this about prayer. But then he's going to get very specific here. He's going to give us a very specific lesson about prayer because he's going to give us some very specific things that we need to be praying for, for our own hearts and for the hearts of people around us. And what we learned this morning, point number two, is how to lift up the right kind of petitions to God. So we learn about the right kind of posture, and now we learn about the right kind of petitions. And here's the first thing that Paul prays for. He prays for these Ephesian believers for the unleashing of Christ's power in their life. That's an important prayer request that needs to be something we pray daily for our lives and in the lives of people around us. Look at the middle of verse 16. Paul says, I'm praying that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. All right, to help us to understand what Paul's praying for, I want to give you two certainties this morning about the Christian life. And this is the first one. I'm going to give you two. Here's the first one. The only way to live the Christian life is the power of Christ in me. Can I just be transparent with you this morning? Is that okay? We're in church. Is that cool? My flesh apart from Christ is very, very ugly. My flesh apart from Christ is really pretty. Now, most of y'all don't act like you're you know, sitting in church on a Sunday morning, right? We can, all, we can all agree on that. There's not anybody in this room who, apart from Christ, has a flesh that's pretty. It's ugly. Apart from Jesus, we are weak, weary, fragile, messy creatures. And apart from Christ, I don't have the ability in my flesh to live the Christian life that God's called me to live. Let me give an example. One of the main things that I'm called to do as a Christian man who's married, one of the main callings on my life is to be the Christian husband to my wife, Rebecca, that God's called me to be. And the Bible gives me very specific instructions as to what I'm supposed to do. And the big piece of instruction that I'm given, the main one is I'm to love her and cherish her, extend grace to her, serve her, lead her in a way that reflects the way Jesus does all of those things for his bride, the church. Right? Did, did you hear that? I'm to love her and treat her the same way Jesus loves and treats the church. Well, wait a second. Let's think about how much he loves the church. He died for the church. He died, took the sin of us on himself, of the world on himself in our place. Wait, I'm supposed to love her like that? There's no way I can begin to demonstrate that apart from the power of Christ in me. I will utterly today fail to be the husband that God's called me to be if I try to do it my own strength. That's not just true concerning who God's called me to be in my marriage as a husband. It's true of God, that he's, of who he's called me to be as a pastor. You know, to be a pastor, it, it, me doing that uh, in a way that prayerfully and by the grace of God honors him doesn't happen through communication ability or leadership ability. It can only happen through the power of Christ in me. The father that God's called me to be, the friend that God's called me to be, the neighbor that God's called me to be, the only way today I can live the life that this book calls me to live is not in my own strength, but the power of Christ to me. We don't just learn that from Paul. We learn that from Jesus himself. John 15, he said this. What did Jesus say? He said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And when you dissect the Greek word there, nothing, you find out that it means this. Are you ready? It means nothing. You can't do anything. But it is interesting. Now let me just come back to that for a second. But it can't mean nothing at all. Let me explain. Because apart from Christ, I can still walk around. I can still live in this world. 
I can still talk. I can think. I get the ability to do all sorts of things. Here's what Jesus is referring to when he says nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's talking about you can do nothing apart from me of eternal significance. You can do nothing apart from me of eternal value. Apart from Christ's work in me, there's nothing I can do to honor God. There's nothing I can do to please God because it's only Christ in me that pleases him. Now, this is a weighty thing to think about right here. This first certainty that the only way I can live the Christian life is the power of Christ in me. But here's the next hopeful, glorious certainty for the believer this morning. You got the power of Christ in you to live the Christian life. The Bible teaches us that at the moment of salvation, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that you're made alive to God through the power of Christ. And in that moment, his spirit comes to live inside of you, which means you've got the power. If you're in Christ this morning, if you're a Christian, you've got the power of Christ in you today. John Stite said this. He said, it is the power of the resurrection, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that enthroned him in the heavens, the power that raised and enthroned us, uh, us with him there. That is the power which is at work within the Christian. You know what Paul's praying? He's praying that that power would be unleashed in these Christians' lives. And that's that's something we need to be praying for our own life. That's something we need to be praying for the lives of people around us. That the power of Christ would be unleashed in our lives so that, verse 17, he gets even more specific, so that, why? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, wait a second. If you're a thinking Christian, if you're thinking this morning, you're going, wait a second. I thought you just said for Christians, Christ already lives in us through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So why is he praying that Christ would dwell in them if he already lives in us? I'm glad you asked that question. The word dwell here is the picture of inhabiting. It's taking up residence in. All right, so here's the picture. You just bought a house. It's a fixer-upper. You've moved into that house, which means you lived in, you live in that home, but now it's time to dwell in that home. Now it's time to take it over and tear down the old outdated wallpaper and put a new wallpaper since from what I hear that's in style again. It's time to tear out some floors and install some new ones. It's time to knock over some walls. It's time to get things organized, to put some pictures on the wall, to start a a project. And when you finish that one, you're going to start another one because there's always something to work on. And what you're doing is you're not living, just living in that house. You're adding your touch to every space and every corner within that home where you dwell. And what Paul says here is he says, I pray for the power of Jesus to be unleashed in your life so that he may dwell in your life. He isn't saying it's time for Jesus to move in. He's already moved in. He's saying it's time for Jesus to get out of the spare bedroom and into the master bedroom and to be the master of all of your house. And to start moving in power as Lord of my life, unleashing his resurrection, restorative power in me, completing projects in me. I need him to complete in order for me to be more conformed to the image of Christ in every person's room, every person's life in this room. There's some outdated wallpaper that needs to be torn down. In every person's life in this room, in every Christian's life, there's some old furniture that needs to be tossed out. There's some closets that need to be cleaned out. There's some walls that need to be demoed. There's things in all of us that need to change spiritually. But please listen to the word of God this morning. Those are things that you don't have the strength to change. Things that we've tried to change on our own, haven't we? And failed miserably. There are things in all of us that we don't have the power to change. But Christ does. And he's inside of us. He's got the power to put his touches on all the corners and spaces of our life. Well, how do we walk in that power? How do we walk in that power? 
But he's kind of given us one way right here. Right? You say, I hear you, Pastor. It's actually very, very hopeful news, and it should be. It's very, very hopeful news that, and exciting that, that the idea of Jesus reigning over my life and unleashing his resurrection, sin-slaying victory, bringing power in my life. How do I get that? Wait, do I just pray for it? Yeah, that's a big part of it. That's the point of this prayer. And abiding in and depending on and fellowshipping with God. And we would do well this morning with the Apostle Paul to fall on our knees in humility and to pray to God the Father who has authority over every name in heaven and on earth and to humble ourselves in desperation and say, God, I confess to you this morning, I've tried to knock down some walls in my own strength. I've tried to tear down some wallpaper in my own strength. I've tried to lift some furniture and throw it out in my own strength. And I've miserably failed. Oh, God, I need you. I need you. Every hour, I need you, and I pray by your grace that the power of Jesus in me would be unleashed in my life because I know apart from you, I can do nothing. But he also shows us another specific prayer, and this is where sometimes as I'm studying for Sunday, things come together. And this is one of these places in Scripture where in a powerful way, I needed this in my heart. I've come through this text before. In mining out what's here, I didn't see it before. But this is something that has powerfully impacted my life this week. And I pray by God's grace it'll impact your life as well. Because what he shows us right here, yes, we need to pray generally for the power of Christ to be unleashed in us. But he also gives us another very specific prayer to pray that actually leads to the transformative power of Christ being unleashed in our life. Look at verse 17. That being rooted and grounded in love, you believers may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So the first petition to pray for our hearts and to pray for the hearts of other people is to pray for Christ's power to be unleashed. But the second, and they're tied together, is for an understanding of God's love in our life. Paul is praying that that we, would, that we would wonder at the love of Christ. That we would be so gripped by the gospel. And the reason why he's praying this is he's learned something in his Christian life that as a believer grows to, to know more and more how truly loved they are by God in Christ Jesus, the more they're going to gladly surrender up and yield up their life to God as a surrendered vessel and depend on him more and abide in him more, therefore unleashing more of His transformative power in our life. These are two requests that work together. Notice how Paul uses two words in this prayer. He says, and I pray that you would comprehend how much He loves you, and I pray that you would know how much He loves you. Those are two important words to circle and make a note of because they're two different words in the Greek. In the Greek language, the word comprehend means to mentally grasp. But the word know in the Greek right here is different. It's a word that means to understand something, not just by simply hearing it, not just by grasping it mentally or cognitively. It's knowing something relationally and experientially. In other words, Paul is praying that the amazing love of God that he's had, that he has for us, that we've learned about, that we've studied the theology of all the way up to this point in these first three chapters will move from just being in our brains and move into our bones and into our spirit and into our heart. As the young people say, into your feels. That you'll experience experientially. Let me give you a story to illustrate the difference. And that's as cool as I'll get this morning. I won't use any more lingo. Let this uh, 
this, this story right here, I've used it before, but I think it's, it's helpful to illustrate the difference between comprehending and knowing. Comprehending co- cognitively and knowing experientially. All right? This morning, there, was a, there are a lot of objective facts that I can give you that you got the ability to grasp in your mind about the Blue Bell Ice Cream Company. Now, I just made some of you hungry right now. I can tell you some stuff about Bluebell. I can tell you that Bluebell Creameries is an American food company that was founded in 1907 in Brenham, Texas. For much of its early history, the company manufactured both ice cream and butter locally, but in the mid-20th century, it abandoned butter production and expanded to the entire state of Texas and soon to the rest of the southern, the southern United States. Praise the Lord for that. And since 1919, it's been in the hands of the Cruz family, and as of 2015, Bluebell is the fourth highest-selling ice cream brand in the United States as a whole, which is a crime. It should be first. And the second largest manufacturer of ice cream in the United States as measured by sales. Interesting information. Like, yeah, that's fine and good to know all of those things. But Bluebell, specifically my favorite Bluebell banana pudding ice cream, does not exist for the purpose of me knowing cognitively, cognitively, objectively, some facts about it. It exists for the purpose of me going to the store, buying the carton, taking it home, taking off the lid, getting an ice cream scoop, taking a few scoops, maybe three, maybe four, maybe five into a bowl, taking a spoon, taking a spoonful of that Bluebell banana pudding ice cream and putting it into my mouth and letting my taste buds experience the matchless deliciousness of it. That's why it exists. And so it is when it comes to the way that believers relate to the love of God. You with me? Paul prays that we would comprehend it. And that's important. That's a part of our discipleship. That we study the word. That we take in these objective truths that are true about the gospel. That we'd understand theology. That we study about the love of God that he has for us in Christ Jesus. But we don't stop there. The Bible doesn't teach us just to study it and pray and and maybe recite prayers about it and memorize it and Try to define it and tweet and Facebook about it. That's comprehending it. It says that we should also know it. That it doesn't just exist there to be stuck in our brains, but that we would experience the love of God, as the psalmist says in Psalms 34, that we taste and see that the Lord is good. When the love of God moves from just being something that's objective in our heads and it gets into our bones and into our heart, and we experience it and know it subjectively and relationally as we walk with Him in relationship. Christians, so many things will fall into place in your life for the glory of God if you'll get that. Paul tells us some things about, let's just swim in this for a second, all right? Because we need to experience it relationally and experientially. And Paul gives us some things about the love of God that he prays we'll both comprehend and know. When he says this, that Christ's love for us is unshakable. He uses some Word pictures right here. He says that you've been rooted and grounded in love. Those are two words that speak to the firm foundation. And it's something that's settled. That means that the love of Christ for you is not up for debate today. You've been rooted. You've been grounded in the love of Christ. Meaning this, there's nothing that you have done today to earn his love for you. And there's nothing that you could do today or this week that will lose his love for you. It's unshakable. You're rooted. See, some of you are here today and you say, but I don't feel loved by God. I kind of feel unlovable. Maybe because of circumstances that aren't going your way. Maybe because you have had a bad week or you've had a bad couple weeks or you've had a bad month. You say, I don't feel loved by God. But if you're a Christian, whatever is influencing you to feel that way is not coming from God. 
And you need to hit your knees with Paul this morning and pray for your own heart. God, help my feelings and my emotions to be more influenced by what you say is true about me and not what this world or even my own flesh says is true about me. Help me to know and to feel and even believe more what is true that for you, I don't have to perform right for you today to earn your love, for you to accept me, that you love me today and it's over. It's period. Unshakable love is mine because of what Christ has done for me on the cross. Second thing Paul tells us is that Christ's love for us is immeasurable. Paul says, I pray that you would be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. In other words, it's a love that you can't measure. It's immeasurable. John Stott, the commentator, describes it like this. The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for all of eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. God's love is is immeasurable. Again, Christian, if you're insecure about the love of God this morning, it's coming after you this morning. God's love for you in Christ is not a thin love. It is not a shallow love. He, he is not shaking his head in frustration at you. He is looking at your life today with delight and with gentleness and with joy and pride. You say, well, how can that be? Because you're hidden in Christ. Amen. Yeah, but what about my sin? Well, we confess our sin. We still sin. We confess our sin. We denounce our sin. We take our sin serious. We fight against our sin. We hate our sin. But the glorious reality of Christianity is that God chooses to not see us in our sin anymore. He loves us in spite of our sin. Because Jesus took the penalty for our sin on the cross. Listen, take this in. Don't just know this. Know this. Feel it. God's capacity to unconditionally love messy people like you, sinners saved by grace, who still sin. We still fall on our face because we still try to do things in our own strength. His love for you is wider and longer and higher and deeper than your mind could ever begin to imagine. Don't just comprehend that. Know that. Believe it. Walk in it. Feel it. Three, Christ's love for us is inexhaustible. He says in verse 19 that Christ's love surpasses knowledge. Now, this is interesting right here. It's almost kind of funny because he says, I want you to know that which you can't know. Notice that? I want you to know that Christ's love surpasses knowledge. I want you to know what you really can't know. And here's his point. Paul's saying that we would, praying that we would know, that we would feel, that we would get rocked by all over again the truth, that we're recipients of his love and his grace that is so rich and it's so big and it's so profound that all of eternity will not be a sufficient amount of time to plumb the depths of it. Believer, throughout eternity, you will be learning and you will never stop learning about the great love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. You'll never exhaust the riches of it. We're recipients of the unshakable, immeasurable, inexhaustible love of God. And every day, he's your father. Paul started with this prayer with that recognition. Every day, your heavenly father's desire for your life. Every day, he's inviting you to, to walk in and to realize and to grow in and to rest in and to believe and to receive the blessed reality that he has lavished you Christian with his grace and with his love and every day he's inviting us to do that and his desire every day is for us to draw near and to do that because he knows that that truth when that truth moves from our head and into our bones and into our heart and into our spirit here's what happens you will gladly yield your life up more to him 
You will more joyfully surrender your life up to him as a surrendered vessel, and the power of Christ will be unleashed in your life. These are two things, two petitions, that should be at the top of all of our prayer lists in our personal life. These are prayers that we should be praying for our own heart, prayers that we should be praying for each other, that we would experience more of the power of Christ in us as we grow to more deeply understand Christ's love for us. And here's the result of praying these kind of prayers and experiencing Christ's power. Look at the end of verse 19. This is the result of praying these kind of prayers and experiencing these things that we're praying for. Verse 19, he says, You will be filled with all the fullness of God. When I experience the power of Christ in me, as I'm growing to know the depths of his love for me, he says, we begin to be filled up with the fullness of God. Now, what does that mean? So, All of you have probably filled up a glass before, maybe with water, to where it's so full, it's actually kind of bubbling over the top, right? Like it's full. And if you're, you've probably seen your kids try this before, and you know, you probably tried it when you were a kid once or twice, or when it's full and you're in the kitchen, they almost see that as a challenge to try to get from the counter to the kitchen table or across the room without it spilling. But sometimes it's so full that it's inevitable. Just them walking, Bumping into something lightly, it's going to spill out over the edge of that. It's going to spill out. Why? Because it's filled with the fullness of that drink. And as you and I experience the power of Christ unleashed in us, as we grow in the knowledge that Christ, of Christ's love for us, our lives become like a cup filled to the brim with the fullness of God. So full that as you walk through life, as you run into people, as you interact with different people, as you encounter different moments, and you just bump into any situation, Jesus spills out. That's the result of this prayer that he's praying being answered in people's life. And here's the wonderful thing about this prayer. God loves answering this prayer. He loves answering the prayer of God. Fill me, unleash me with your, unleash your power within me as I grow more today in a knowledge of your love for me. As we're filled with the fullness of God. You know, Paul in this letter is about to address a lot of different areas in our life. The next part of this letter is filled with practical teaching about how we're supposed to live as a unified body. We'll learn a little bit about that next week. How we're supposed to be treating each other. How should we should be talking to each other and about each other. What our marriages should look like. Marriages that honor Christ. Uh, what parenting should look like, how we should be parenting our kids, what it looks like to be a God-honoring child in your home, how we should be, you know, as co-workers, how we should be living and behaving as disciples in all kinds of different areas, and it's very practical, and we love to jump to that practical side, don't we? We love to jump immediately to the practical teaching. We love to roll our sleeves up. I know I got some things in my life that need to be fixed. I want to get into that practical teaching. I want to understand what I can do. But I want you to listen to me. Jesus spilling out into those different relationships out of your life. Jesus spilling out into the way that we talk, the way that we interact with people in our homes. Jesus spilling out in the ways that we interact with people in our everyday lives. Who we are at the store, at the grocery store, in our neighborhood, in traffic. Anybody got any weak areas there? Jesus spilling out in those different areas only happens as a result of the eternal supernatural power of Christ at work in our hearts. Work that Jesus must do. It's only the result of the power 
of Christ unleashed in us as we grow and understand His love for us. Again, our hearts are like a swing on which the rest of our life swings. You know what that means? It means we need to tend to our hearts this morning. We need to tend to our hearts. We need to pray for our hearts. We need to pray for the hearts of people around us in the same way that Paul prays for the hearts of these Ephesian Christians. And when we pray for those things, and when we experience those things, there's an unleashing of God's power as we grow to understand more and more how much He loves us. Listen, what God is able to do, look at verse 20. What God is able to do in the life of someone who gets what Paul is praying for and experiences what Paul is praying for, who understands it's heart work that has to happen and spends time tending to their heart in prayer, asking God that he would release his power, unleash his power in my life as I understand the love that God has for me in Christ. What God is able to do surpasses and goes beyond anything that you can think. You've got some ideas about how your marriage can be better. You've got some ideas about how God can move in different relationships. You've got some ideas about how God can move in the life of your prodigal son. You've got some ideas about how God could move in power and the addiction that you have that you can't get victory over. Listen, you pay attention right here to what Paul is telling us to pray for our own hearts and praying for other people's hearts, and you begin to pray persistently in a posture of humility that, God, I pray that you would unleash your power in my life, but that you grow my understanding of the gospel and how much you love me so that your power can be unleashed in my life. He will do things in and through your life that will pass what you can even begin to imagine. That's what he's talking about right here. We grab that sometimes and go, God, move this mountain. Move it out of the way. The greater thing he may want to do is to do such a work in your heart that he keeps you sustained and faithful and joyful even though he doesn't move the mountain. It's heart work that has to be done. And so we're going to get to all of that. We're going to get to a lot of practical teaching. But Paul places this prayer here for a reason. It's in this place for a reason. As much as this prayer is like a hinge to the rest of this book, our heart is a hinge to the rest of our life. So we need to tend to the hinge this morning. We tend to our hearts. Now, you may be here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ. We talked about a cup being full, but you don't even have a cup. You're not saved. You're not a Christian. You haven't experienced God's forgiveness and His love found in humbly bowing your knee to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, repenting of your sin, believing the gospel. And that's where you need to begin this morning. That's where you need, that's the place of prayer you need to get to. Lifting your heart to the Lord and asking Him to save you this morning. Just a few moments, I'm going to be standing out front. If you need somebody to pray with you about that, I would love to pray with you about what it means to receive Christ today. But believers, stick with me for another 45 seconds. There are so many Christians here this morning that if you're honest, you would say, my spiritual life feels weak this morning. There are a lot of Christians whose Christian lives are weak. And you know why? It's because you're trying to do a lot of things in your own strength. You know what that probably means? And it's a good indicator of that your prayer life is probably pretty weak. But you know what? That can change this morning. Let's tend to the hinge this morning. 
Let's tend to our heart. It would do us well this morning to bow our knees with Paul and to lift up these same requests that he prayed for these Ephesian Christians for our hearts and the hearts of people around us. And as we do that, may his power be unleashed in us as we grow and marvel and cherish the love that he has for us in Christ Jesus. And may he fill us with his fullness for his glory, we pray with Paul at the end of this. And everybody said, amen. Let's pray. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ, as I said, I'll be down front. would love to meet with you. And to believers in the room, tend to the hinge of your life this morning. Spend some time in prayer this morning. May all of us pray that simple prayer, but a very profound prayer. God, unleash your power in me. And help me to grow in the knowledge of the love that you have for me so that your power can be unleashed in me. Take your heart before him in prayer. Let him work in you. And I'll allow you to respond today in the way that God's leading you to respond. This altar, we kind of turn this into an altar on Sunday mornings. You're welcome to come up front and to bow your knee before him. Sit at your chair, pray to him. Maybe you just want to stand and respond to him through this song. You allow the Holy Spirit to show you how you need to respond.